will be reading from Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and then chapter 3, the whole chapter of 3. Then we turned back and set out toward the wilderness, along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. Next we turned and went up along the road towards Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with his whole army, marched out to meet us in battle of at Edrei. The Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time we took all his cities. There was not one of the sixty cities that we did not take from them, the whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from their cities we carried off for ourselves. So at that time we took from these two kings of the Amorites the territory east of the Jordan from the Arnon Gorge as far as Mount Hermon. Hermon is called Syrian by the Sidonians. The Amorites call it Senir. We took all the towns on the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Saleka and Edrei, towns of Og's kingdom in Bashan. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Raphaites. His bed was decorated with iron and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. Of the land that we took over at that time, I gave the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory north of Aroer by the Arnon Gorge, including half the hill country of Gilead, together with its towns. The rest of Gilead and also all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, 
I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. The whole region of Argob in Bashan used to be known as a land of the Rephites. Jer, a descendant of Manasseh, took the whole region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Markites. It was named after him, so that to this day Bashan is called Havoth Jair. And I gave Gilead to Makir, but to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory extending from Gilead down to Ernon Gorge, the middle of the gorge being the Buddha, and out to the Jabok River, which is the border of the Ammonites. Its western border was the Jordan in the Arabah, from Kinnereth to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, below the slopes of Pishgah. I commanded you at that time. The Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But all your able-bodied men, armed for battle, must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. However, your wives, your children, and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, may stay in the towns I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your fellow Israelites as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. At that time, I commanded Joshua, You have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you are going. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. At that time I pleaded with the Lord. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there, in heaven or on earth, who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Go up to the top of Pishgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Um, last Sunday afternoon, we sat down. It was pretty cozy. We sat down to watch The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the 2011 version. And it was really very, very good. There's a great part at the beginning as the uh, story unfolds. The kids are playing hide-and-seek in this huge house that we all wish we owned, apart from having to do the upkeep on it. It's the professor's house, and in one of the houses that Lucy finds, there's a huge dust sheet that covers a huge mahogany-looking wardrobe. She rips off the dust sheet, and she goes into the wardrobe. 
We all know what happens next. Her hands push, push uh, aside these very weighty-looking uh, fur coats. I'm sure they were real fur in those days. Can't have that now. These really heavy fur coats. Then her hands just, they just keep going. And then she touches the fur uh, fingers of a tree. And then she steps on the carpet of snow. And then she meets Mr. Tumnus. And then she has this wonderful journey. And then she rushes back, looking at the metal tree, known as a lamp to some of us. And then she goes back into the room and she shouts out, have you missed me? To her brothers and sisters. And they look at her as if she's got at least three heads. What do you mean if we missed you? We were looking for you. You've got to come and see this place where I've just been. You've got to come and see this man I've just met. You've got to come and feel the snow that I just trod upon. And their response is very Deuteronomy-esque. Edmund, children of her age, have these sort of experiences. Um, the professor says, does she normally behave like this? Susan says, I don't believe you. Here are her siblings, here's the professor. They know something of Lucy's character, and yet they don't believe her. They do not trust her. Last week we saw that this is really at the heart of Deuteronomy. It's an issue of trust between God's people and our God. It's the issue that is timeless. It's the issue that we each face in all of our hearts. Will we take God at his word? Will we trust him? Is God trustworthy? You can be here and you're a non-Christian this morning. The key issue that you'll have to face is, is this book trustworthy? More important than that is, is God trustworthy? If you're a Christian here this morning, it doesn't get any easier. I've got these intellectual questions that are still there. Is the Bible trustworthy? Can God be taken at his word? Is he true to his promises? Will he come through for me? Because I've given up so much. It's easy to think of like that as a Christian, isn't it? And in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy... It's a little bit like a, a post-football match conference where you look back and you review what's happened. You don't say it was a game of two halves. You say, this is God's faithfulness to us. Uh, and Moses is speaking to a new generation about the faithlessness of the previous generation who saw all of God's mighty deeds in Egypt, who saw God split apart the Red Sea, who heard God's voice as he descended visually on top of Mount Sinai and spoke his word to them. And Moses says to a new generation, let's recap what's happened. Will you trust God in a way that your parents did not? Will you take him at his word? Will you obey his voice? And as we turn to chapters 2 and into chapter 3, we didn't have time to read all of it, I'm afraid. On first, on first impressions, it looks like a road movie. It looks like a road mo movie when you're just sort of skirting through some historical data and there's some battles happen and you see some sights. And I've scratched my head, at least for the start of the week, thinking, what has this got to say to us today? You can look at it in a couple of ways. It's a little bit like, uh, if you like military history, this is your briefing before an invasion. If you're into property this is uh, and a corporate takeover is about to happen as Israel go into the promised land. And this is, a, this is due diligence. Um, if you uh, think of the land being taken over, new management, you're, you're doing all this pre-work. And here's Moses saying, let me give you some data. Let me give you, give you a history lesson. Let me give you a big flyby 
of the history of your parents. God is trustworthy. New generation of people, will you go and take God at his words? Because, as we saw last week, he's going before you. He goes before you into a new year. He goes before you into a promised land. And he will fight for you. And in this huge passage of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, I've boiled it down so it's very, very simple. There are three meetings and there are two battles. Three meetings and two battles. You meet the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and you meet two kings, Shehon and Og. And here's the first big point. God reveals himself in these chapters in an unmistakable way as a sovereign ruler. As a sovereign ruler. That's the first thing I want us to look at. God is a sovereign ruler. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. God speaks to Moses and he warns Moses and therefore he warns his people about fighting the Edomites. Verse 2, although they will be afraid of you. Verse 4, verse 5, do not provoke them to war for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. Don't even think about placing a size 9 on this sand because God, the sovereign ruler over all, says, I've given it to somebody else. Verse 9 of chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, skim down. Then the Lord said to me, do not harass the Moabites. It's the second tribe we meet. Or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I've given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Verse 19, look down again. I'm not going to give you any of this land either because I've given it to the Ammonites. Don't put your size nine on any of these parts of my world because I've given it to somebody else. Who on earth can say that unless God is revealing himself to be sovereign over all? He is Israel's king, but he's king of the whole universe as well. When I was 18, I picked up a book off my grandfather's bookcase, which I think I've told you before. It's it's a book by J.B. Phillips, and it's a very thin but profound book, and it's called Your God is Too Small. In it, it's written in 1965, he says it's very easy for us to think of God as a projection of an authority figure in the world. So you can think of God as a divine policeman. He's someone who's very authoritarian. You can think of God as a heavenly father, projecting your experience of your own father, good or bad, onto him. You can think of God as a school teacher, someone who's just really interested in information and data, not very relational, but they just want to get stuff into you. You can think of God in these different ways. But here, Moses and God is teaching us through his word that he is sovereign over all things. This is not our impression of what God is like. This is not a projection. God is saying to Moses, you're about to go into a land. I'm giving uh, the promised land, as I promised the previous generation, as I promised even further back to Abraham, is going to happen. But there are boundaries and limitations to the land that you and Israel are to take. This is no projection. In chapter 1, God revealed himself as a father who carries his children as a mighty warrior in battle. And here he's saying, I am a sovereign ruler over all things. I don't just, I'm not just concerned with individuals, I'm concerned with nations, I'm concerned with seas, I'm concerned with uh, movements of people. So let me ask you this morning, Christian friend, how big is your God? Is your understanding of God a projection of your own authoritarian experience? 
Or is your understanding of God shaped by the word of God? Because here God is saying, I am sovereign over all. I'm concerned with nations. They're but a drop into the ocean for me. Verses 10 to 12, there are two other examples of invasions as Esau's descendants tell the inhabitants of their land literally to move on. You need to shove off because this land is ours. And here we have another example of God revealing his character that he can move nations out of the way. You know, people, they have land disputes over the position of a fence. Or you see it if you read the Daily Mail at least three times a week. There's another hedge that's grown too big and the council say you've got to take them down. And there's another landowner who builds a, a mock castle and he covers it up imaginatively with bales of hay. And then the local council spot it and say, move it away and knock it down. God is not concerned simply with individuals. He's huge and he's vast and he's sovereign over all. To quote the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, he says, there is not one square inch in all of the cosmos over which God of the Bible cannot say, mine. Everything is his. Every atom, every molecule, every heartbeat, every breath of your lung, every person of every nation belongs to God. There is not one square inch of the cosmos which we're still exploring which God does not say mine. Every nation Israel will meet, God is in charge of them. The nations won't recognise his rule. There will be warring, there will be battle, there will be the difficult concept of holy war and God's justice and his wrath against sin. But God is in charge of every nation Every tribal movement, he gives people the boundaries of where they will pitch their tents and the land that they will own. He decides their new address. He marks out the boundaries. He decides how long tribes can stay. The God of the Bible is the God of geography. The God of the Bible is the God of history. How big is your God? Is he as big as the God of the Bible says he is and has revealed himself to be? But why is this said at this point in Israel's history? Because God wants to tell his people that there is work to be done. There is a land that I've promised to give you and will you take hold of it? I will fight for you. I will go before you. You need to know this. They need to know this because they're about to enter occupied territory. They need to go in and tell some people to move over because this land belongs to God and God has given it to us. You need to go and fight, but God will fight for you and he'll go before you. And you think, well, hang on, if you're new to Christian things, or even if you're old to Christian things, isn't this a bit like cultural imperialism? Who who are Israel to say to some other people, you need to move aside, and that's not your land, it's mine, that's not your well, it's my well. There's only one God, the Bible teaches us, and Israel will only do what God has told them to do. Back in um, 1792, there was a young man, and he was very young. He was a young Christian minister called William Carey. And he attended a Baptist conference with some other young Christian ministers, and there were some more mature Christian ministers there as well. And one of the older men said to the two younger men, William was there with a friend, you need to ask a question that we can discuss and have some hot debate. And uh, William Carey threw in this uh, dynamite question to say, um, when... If there are so many people around the world who don't know who God is, why aren't we out there telling them about Jesus? 
Why aren't we out there telling them about Jesus and his love and his grace and his power and the reality of hell and the future of heaven for all those who trust him? Why aren't we out there? The room exploded. One of the older gentlemen didn't look too kindly on Paul Williams' question and he said this, when God uh, is pleased to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. They had a way of speaking back then. In other words, it's not our responsibility, says the man. It's someone else's responsibility. And Carey said, no, it's ours, because it's part of the Great Commission to go forth and tell people in Epsom, to go and tell people in Ethiopia, to go and tell people in Ecuador, to go and tell people in Newell. It's our responsibility. Carey gripped this more than other men in the room did. And he started a mission agency. He's known as the father of modern mission. And that's why it's relevant to us, friends. You may have somebody who comes and says to you, okay, you're a Christian, that's great for you, but it's the 21st century and now religion is privatised. I don't believe that there's a God at all. I don't believe in the Bible. How can you say what you say to someone else? You need to keep it to yourself. Very similar understanding to this man that confronted William Carey. Friends, as we should seek to share our faith, it is not a cultural imperialism of telling another nation about the goodness of God. It's not arrogance telling a work colleague who works at the next workstation to us that there is a God who rules over the whole universe about the reality of judgment and the reality and the hope of heaven. That's not arrogance. It's humble obedience of completing and fulfilling the Great Commission. Because the Bible reveals from beginning to end there is one God and he's Lord over all. He's not just Lord of Israel. He's the Lord of all. There is one God who's Lord of the nations. There's one God who's Lord of all the peoples of the world. There's one God who's Lord of all the islands of the world. And therefore we pray and plead with people to come under his loving rule. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus said. And that's what this uh, chapter 2 is about. It's about understanding that God is sovereign over all and that they, he has placed boundaries on nations, and that moving nations around is but a small thing to him, and so too is moving kings. Three nations, two kings. At the end of chapter 2, we read about the battle of King Sihon, and at the beginning of chapter 3, we meet King Og. What a great name, but he loved his mum. He's the king of Bashan. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. Bashan is a huge area. There are 60 cities, verse 5, that were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, as well as, a lovely little footnote here, a great many unwalled villages. And then the king himself, verse 11 of chapter 3, he was a huge kind of guy. <laughs> I don't know how long, it's nearly four metres his bed. Imagine changing that. Where do you go? It's not Ikea, is it? Where do you go to get linen for that kind of thing? I don't know. And it's made from iron. That's simply put there, not to say it's strong, because he's a big kind of guy. It means to say that he's wealthy. He's a wealthy man. He's physically imposing. He's part of a large nation. And here's little Israel with no foot of land to call their own. But God is sovereign over all. Verse 1, it's this vast battle scene of chapter 3 of opposing armies. But here's the point. God is sovereign over all. The point being that the God of Israel conquered even Og, 
even Sihon, and these three other nations that were told to move aside as well. Nothing is too big for God because God is so great. That's the point. God is sovereign over all. Moses here in verse 21 is saying, look, you've seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there in the promised land. Look how great God is. Go forward as your parents did not. You can trust God as your parents did not. Not because they're better in the new generation, but because God is trustworthy. Verse 22 of chapter 3. Don't be afraid of these nations that you're going to meet because the Lord your God himself will fight for you. I'm not just telling you about how great God is. I'm showing you at what he has done. I'm showing you how he's been faithful to you in the past. God is unchangeable. He'll be faithful to you in the present. And he sure will be faithful to you as he fulfills his covenant promises in the future. Because God is unchanging. Will you trust him? That's why I'm going to tell you, says Moses, about the king of Shehon. It's worth knowing about. I'm going to tell you about King Og because it's worth remembering how God dealt with him. And friends, God will fight for you in the future. Will you trust him, new generation, says Moses. Before we move on, I remember someone saying to me, look, if I become a Christian, what would I have to give up? Will I have to do this, they said. Will I have to do that? Will I have to stop doing this? And will I have to stop doing that? And they just wanted to know the boundaries. They just wanted to know what mental form do I have to fill in What uh, terms and conditions do I have to read before I follow this God, the God of the Bible? Here's another way of putting it. I said to them, it's as if you're saying to me that you're not going to follow Jesus unless Jesus comes through for me. I will follow Jesus if he meets my needs. I will follow Jesus if he meets my commands. I said, it sounds to me as if you just want to follow a God of your own making. And the questions that you're asking me, I said to them, it sounds as if um, actually you've got a God already. Someone has defined God as that non-negotiable thing in your life. It could be your bank balance, that's supreme to you. It could be your family, they're the most important to you. It could be a career path or a relationship that defines you. All of those things could be your God. But friends, becoming a Christian, someone who becomes a Christian never comes to God with a list of demands with a list of just tell me the do's and the do nots, someone who becomes a Christian. Someone who becomes a Christian is someone like Abraham, who comes to God and obeys him, not knowing where he's going to go. Someone who becomes a Christian is someone like Moses, who forsakes all the uh, fleeting pleasures of Egypt because they want to follow God because he's more precious. And both Abraham and Moses, their lives were a mess, but God had mercy on them. Because if you wanted to become a Christian this morning, you either come to God on his terms, removing your self-dependence, realising that you're completely dependent on him or you don't come to him at all. You don't come to him on your terms, you always come to God on his terms, which means faith in Jesus, laying aside whatever God you worship, whatever security you trust in, and trusting only in Jesus. That's what it means to become a Christian. Because God is the sovereign ruler over all. Why would you want to worship someone else? Why would you want to begin a new year without recognising this truth again as we did last week? We don't know if the person next to you will be here at the end of this year. 
I don't say that to shock you. I say that because one out of one people die. We don't know if we will lose our job or if we'll get a promotion. We don't know if we will lose our home or if we'll forfeit it. But one thing we do know because the Bible tells us so is that God is completely trustworthy. He may take away everything else, but he will always give us himself. He's promised to be with us. And God is sovereign overall. That sounds as if God is distant, but if that's true, which it isn't, let's look more carefully at verses 23 to 29 of chapter 3. God is the sovereign ruler of nations, but he's also the listening Lord. He's the listening Lord, verses 23 to 29. These verses seem very harsh. They seem very severe. The, the background of this passage is important. If you wanted to turn to it and read it this afternoon, you need to go back to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, which is a parallel book explaining the history of Israel in the wilderness. Let me recap for you. Israel were in the wilderness and they were complaining and grumbling and murmuring. It doesn't mean they were speaking under their breath, but they were aggressively discontent with God's provision. And so Israel were complaining against Moses, God's leader, and against God, Moses' God, and their God too. They were saying things like, if you read Numbers 20, there's no water here and we're dying of thirst. That was true. If only we had died like our brothers in Egypt. Have you brought us here, so they accused God and Moses, have you brought us here so that we might die? That's how they were feeling, because they were so, so, so thirsty. They thought they were going to die in the wilderness. They were doubting God's goodness. They were not trusting his promises, even though God had provided again and again and again for them. They thought God was not good and he was not trustworthy. And so they complained. And in this instance, God provided for his people by saying to Moses, take your staff of authority with which you struck the Red Sea, which I turned into a serpent and killed and ate up all the serpents of the magicians in Egypt. Take that staff and take it with you, but I want you to speak to the rock. Hold that staff in your hand, but speak to the rock and speak to it twice. And then water will come forth and I will provide for my people. But Moses, sadly, as he had the grumbling and the complaining of Israel, he took that staff and he struck the rock. He struck the rock twice. He disobeyed God. He didn't take God at his word. And yet God at his mercy still provided water, even through that act of disobedience. And God's people were wonderfully provided for. When you come to verses 23 to 29, just imagine what Moses was thinking. Here they are, he's got a second opportunity to enter the promised land. This is what his leadership has been all about. Leading God's people from bondage and slavery through to Mount Sinai and now to the promised land. With a new generation who he hoped would take God at his word. But just imagine what was going through Moses' mind as he starts to plead with God in verse 23. Lord, I know I disobeyed you, but I wasn't myself. They were complaining. Didn't you hear them? Surely the Israelites have to share... They, they need to share some of the blame with me. Um, they were complaining and they were grumbling. Are you really going to deny me my inheritance? And so Moses starts to plead that God would relent on his justice and let him enter the promised land. I've led them for such a long time. Please let me in. Please relent. Please show mercy upon me. Verse 25 shows us that 
Moses doesn't ask for a long stay in the land. He, he doesn't say, can I taste some milk and honey? Can I, can I have a huge estate? After all, I've been the leader. Can I build myself a huge Buckingham Palace-esque tent? Because I'm the main man in Israel and no one has seen you as I have seen you. He doesn't ask for that. He just wants to see it. He just wants to go in and have a look around. That's all he's asking for. He just wants to stand in the land. But notice how the prayer begins as Moses pleads to the listening Lord. Verse 23, at that time, I pleaded with the Lord. I pleaded with the covenant Lord, with Yahweh. Notice what is being said here. He's pleading with God to have compassion on him. It's the same word that Joseph uses as his brothers are scheming in Genesis 42 to throw him into uh, the hands of uh, some slaves that would barter him off. And he pleads to, please don't do it. It's the same word that Queen Esther uses in Esther chapter 8 as she's pleading for herself and for her own people, please don't do it. Moses here is throwing himself on God's mercy. It's not one of those prayers that you pray. <laughs> we had one in the car on the way to, to, <laughs> to school this morning. It's not one of those quick arrow prayers, Lord, please help us and please help those leaders of Emmanuel kids. It's not one of those prayers that you pray um, before mealtime when you're really hungry. Thank you for this food, amen. Go. Um, this is pleading. You can imagine um, sweat coming off his brow because he really wants God to relent. This is a heartfelt, burden-filled prayer. You get a sense of how disappointed Moses is that he's not going to enter into the land. He's led God's people for decades. And yet God in his justice has said, you will not enter into the promised land because you've disobeyed me. And what's interesting is as you look at this prayer and this the sense of pleading before God, entrusting that his answer, whatever it will be, yes or no, will be right because God is just. All the Bible commentators make a parallel and say this sentiment and this sense of pathos is very similar to another prayer, to Jesus' prayer. The high uh, priestly prayer is, is fantastic and rich and biblically true, but there's another prayer that Jesus prays on the night before he's crucified when he cries out to his father, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. If there's any other way, Please take this cup away from me. I don't want to go to the cross, but I put myself in your hands. And that's the sentiment that Moses is praying here to the sovereign Lord of the cosmos, to the ruler of the nations, but to the listening Lord. He throws himself in his mercy and says, please will you relent, but I trust you, whatever the answer may be. It's a sign of the depth of relationship that Moses has. True intimacy with someone means transparency and so you can cry out physically and literally before the Lord. Let me ask you, where do you go to do that? Where do you go when you've had that deep heart-rending disappointment? Where do you go to process those tears? With whom do you process your fears? Do you open the laptop and onto Facebook and you just do a huge word vomit and you do pages and pages and you just process your stuff on Facebook for all the world to see? Do you have a close friend when your heart's been broken you pick up the phone and you call them and you pour it all out? Or do you pour it out before the Lord? 
Yeah, but what about when God breaks your heart? What about when God doesn't come through for you? Where do you go then? You can't go back to God, can you? Yes, you can. That's what this passage teaches, as verse 23 says. And Jesus in the garden, you can throw yourself on God's mercy and you can vent and you can pour it out. If you don't believe me, read the Psalms from front to back. And you see people who have had their hearts broken, had their fears shattered, and they are processing all their emotions before the Lord, who is in control of the universe. Friends, do you have a relationship with the Lord when even when he doesn't come through with your agenda, when he breaks your heart, actually you go back to him and you can say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, but I trust you. Do you know anything of that? He's a sovereign Lord, but he's also the listening Lord. And notice after this heart-rendering beginning, verse 23, notice verse 24. There's just the seeds of a resolution here. O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Here's Moses, he's putting together two things, the God's sovereignty, his control, but also the intimacy that he knows he's putting them together. And in spite of his pleading, verses 26 through to 29, God still answers no. You'll see it, but you'll see it from afar. You will not enter into it. There's a lovely Christian lady that used to go to a church that Joe and I attended in America. She was called uh, Elizabeth Elliot. She uh, had a lot of heartache in her life. And she described a scene when she was in Wales once where she saw a shepherd, who funnily enough was looking after sheep. And he, she said once a year you would see a shepherd do something very, very strange. They would get a sheep and they would lead them into a vat of uh, pesticide. Because if they didn't put them in pesticide, they would not have a protection and they would be killed by insects and bugs. But the shepherd would do something very strange. They wouldn't just lead them into this huge vat. What they would do is the sheep was trying to swim is they would plunge the head of the sheep beneath the, uh, the water line of the insecticide so that the sheep would feel like they're drowning. And this is the shepherd who's supposed to care for them. They would push them down again and again and the sheep would keep coming up. And Elizabeth Elliot said these, these words, sometimes it may feel as if the God who's trying to save you is actually trying to kill you. Sometimes life feels like that. Sometimes it can feel as if the God who is saving us is trying to kill us. I'm sure Moses felt like that. Perhaps you feel like that too. But even, even though it feels like that to Moses, he pleads to God knowing that God is a God of grace. In the moment of judgment, there's also grace. Did you see that in 24? Nobody deserves to enter the promised land. If there's anybody to enter into the promised land on merit, surely it would be Moses. He's got all his badges. Yeah, he's had his long service badge for 40 years at least of service. He's had his perseverance badge from the scouts as well. He's done all these things leading God's people. He's worked really hard. He's sweated buckets. He's known deprivation. He's known forsakenness. He left the throne room of Egypt to serve God and to lead God's people. He's known what it's like for people to moan and grumble. He knows the, the marks of leadership not giving anything away there. And yet, this verse and these verses show us that you do not enter into God's promised rest. You don't get into the promised land through merit. It's not through hard work. It's only by grace. 
if someone as great as Moses doesn't get in on all the things that he's done, there must be another way to enter in. No one enters in according to their own righteousness, says God. And we're going to see this through the book. Why does God love little Israel? Simply because he does. It's all of grace. There's nothing in them to say, hey, look at me, aren't we great? It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. Look at verse 24. You have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. Here's Moses. This is absolutely crazy if we grasp this. He's making an amazing assessment. Moses has seen the full nine yards. He's seen God uh, smite his enemies, the Egyptian army. He's seen God divide the Red Sea. He's seen God show his might and power over all the gods of Egypt. He's seen God lead his people through a pillar of cloud and fire. He's heard God's voice on the mountain. And yet, he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 24 shows that. You've begun to show your servant your greatness. And surely Moses can only see this because there is a shadow. There is a shadow of something coming in the future in someone. Moses may not have the joy of entering the literal promised land. He may not have the reality of actually walking on the new grassy land of Cana. He may not taste the milk and the honey. But through faith in Jesus, he will have the certainty of enjoying an eternity in the promised rest, in the ultimate promised land. It will be physical, it will be real, it will be concrete. Not made of concrete, but it will be physical and real. And God will dwell with his people and Moses will walk with his God. And that's all because of grace. It's all because God is sovereign over all things. And also because God is a listening Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth in those children's songs that our God is so great, he's so big, our God is so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. You move nations around and there's just a jot to you. You can carry people in your arms through greatest pain and suffering at a bedside. You can hear people's cries when they cry out on the school run because they run out of energy. And you can hear the uh, cry of a pupil who is afraid. Father, we thank you for this wonderful tension we see in this, on what on the forefront appears an obscure passage. It is such a rich passage that reminds us of your kingly nature, but also the intimacy that we can enjoy through Jesus. Please remind us afresh of this wonderful truth as we gather around the table now. Amen.